this planet, this universe. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word together, uh, to hear from Pastor Stephen. We just pray that you would make our hearts tender to the Holy Spirit. Help our minds to be able to process what it is you want to show us today. Lord, cause the scales to fall from our eyes, our ears to be unstopped. We love you, and we commit the remainder of the service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hit record. Can you hit? <laughs> Sorry. Got to hit record. Okay. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that. Have any of you guys heard of the, the church growth movement? You heard that phrase before? Maybe, maybe you've heard about this. It's, it's this, uh, it kind of started in the 70s, real big in the 80s and 90s, about the idea of just having these massive churches. And the idea was, you know, if you can you know, share the gospel with lots of people, and lots of people come to Christ, and then you can have these, these massive churches. And I'm sure you've heard of a megachurch, right? Megachurch... Uh, I believe the technical definition is any church over 2,000 people, and maybe people define it differently. There's actually a church in South Korea that at its peak had about 850,000 people in it. Uh, you probably have heard of churches in Texas and Georgia that have, you know, uh, 60, 70, 80,000 people. Uh, I grew up, uh, I'm going to show you a picture of, of the church I grew up in, it it, I don't know if you can see it. It's, it's round, and it's pointed at the top, and, and it's, everyone who sees it is like, what in the world is that? But to me, that was just church. That's where I grew up. That's Central Church in Memphis, Tennessee, back in the 80s. Uh, at its peak, it had 7,000 people every Sunday. Our sanctuary sat 45, 4,300 people. And um, we had multiple services and children's ministry, and it was the kind of church that you could, you could get hyper-engaged or you could get totally lost. And I will say this. Um, I'm going to say some things about big churches today, but I loved that church. I loved growing up there. It was, it was fantastic in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I do think that sometimes we get a little bit of the wrong focus when we think about church growth. And I don't know, I mean, obviously, there's only about, I mean, you can't tell at home, but there's only about four or 5,000 people here today, right? So, so we've still got some growth to do. Um, you know, when I was growing up, 7,000, we were the third largest church in town. The largest was a Baptist church led by a guy named Adrian Rogers. You may have seen him on TV, 25,000. Um, so we were kind of like the small big church, you know? But, um, you know, I think sometimes we get the wrong focus. You know, when, when Jesus talks about church growth, I think he had a little different perspective than the one we have today. And, and we just, I think part of it is, in the modern world, we just kind of think bigger is better. Do you guys remember that old Peter Gabriel song, Big Time? Big time, I'm on my way, I'm making it. And he talks about he worships a big God in a big church. And I just thought... You know, this is, this is back in the 80s, and I just remember hearing that song and thinking about how I did go to a big church and prayed to a big God. Uh, you know, there's, but there's all these different ideas kind of out there. But if you would, turn with me to, to John chapter 6. 
I just want to give you an example of Jesus' church growth movement that he started. You guys may know this story. John chapter 6, it starts out like this. Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, and these huge crowds of people follow him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival was near. So when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now Philip answered him and said, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. That's how many people there were. Another of his disciples, Andrew, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And do you guys know the rest of the story? Jesus receives this small gift. He prays to heaven, and then he begins to break the bread and break the fish. And they have everyone sit down in somewhat orderly chaos (laughs) on the grass, and and it says that there's 5,000 men there along with women and children. And they pass out the bread, and they pass out the fish, and they pass out the bread, and they pass out the fish, and they pass out the bread, and they pass out the fish. And you know how much they had left over when everyone was, had as much food as they wanted? Twelve baskets. And my understanding is that these were supposedly very large baskets. One for each of the tribes of Israel, one for each of the apostles, however you want to think about it. Uh, and so these people were amazed, and they didn't want Jesus to leave. Why not? Number one, crazy miracle. Number two, free food. Now, I remember going to college, and the first week of college, there's free food everywhere, and you think college is fantastic. And then the second week, you realize you have to buy your own food. It's kind of like that. They're, they're like, this is fantastic. We want more of this. How do we stay in this game? And then Jesus does something really interesting. Uh, As you know the story, what he does is he draws them all to himself, and they march to Jerusalem and take over the capital, right? No, not at all. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So when the crowds get really big, Jesus leaves. This is the exact opposite of a church growth movement strategy. This is not how you build a big church. This is not how you, how you start a movement. You want to gather as many people as you can and get them to follow you. And if, hey, if they want to make you king, all the better for it. It just makes your job easier. But again, sometimes I think we get the wrong focus. What does Jesus do? He draws away to do what? Two things. To be with the Lord and to be with his disciples. So his disciples go out on a little boat ride. They go for a little tour of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They're getting away from the crowds. They're they're also kind of wondering where Jesus went. But then all of a sudden, Jesus walks out on the water to them, gets in their boat, and then they go to the other side of the sea. And the people think, well, we saw the disciples leave, but Jesus didn't leave, but let's go look for him. And they find him on the other side of the lake. How did you get here? You weren't in the boat. You know, another miracle. But then Jesus begins to teach them again the next day, the ones who came. And, And so they... 
they're looking all over him for him. But then in verse 28 of chapter 6, they say, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So what they're probably expecting is for Jesus to expound on the Old Testament law, you know, uh, take care of your neighbor, don't, don't let your oxen gore somebody's sheep, uh, don't cheat on your spouse, you know, these types of things. And to, but he says, look, if you really want to do the will of God, you have to trust in the one that he sent. And of course, who's the one that he sent? Right, it's him. What sign will you give that we may see it and believe? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. So they said, Moses fed us in the wilderness, and yesterday you fed us. So are you like Moses? Are you coming to bring this this new manna from heaven? And Jesus says, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. What a statement. Always give us this bread. We don't want any more of that regular bread that feeds 5,000 people from a few loaves. We don't want that kind of bread. (laughs) They want even better bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Now, when Jesus says this, This is a hard teaching for the Jewish people. They are expecting a prophet, but Jesus starts making claims that are a little too big for their understanding of who he would be. Because he says that he has come down from heaven. Right? This is a a bold claim. And that he's going to do the will of the Father. And then he goes on to say, I'm the bread. And they say, how can you be the bread? You're Jesus. We know you. Now, of course, back then, Jesus was not a name that would stand out. It's the name that we, it's the same name, Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, same name. We know you. You're you're Josh. We've known you. We know where you grew up. We know who your parents are. We know who your mom is, in fact. We're not quite sure who your dad is. How can you be from heaven? How can you be the bread of life? So they don't say all that, but that's what they're thinking. And then Jesus begins to tell them that they're going to have to literally come and eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is totally abhorrent to both the culture and the religion of the Jewish people. And you know what these people do? One day he feeds them bread and fish and they want to make him king. The next day he tells them, you're going to have to drink my blood You know, I mean, just crazy talk. And they walk away and they disperse. And even his closest disciples consider leaving. And he says, are you going to leave too? And they look at him. They've they've got more experience with him. They've been with him a while. They said, where else would we go? You alone have, I think they say the words of life. Is that right? Yeah, you alone have the words of life. Where else could we go? You know, when Jesus gets a crowd, the first thing he tries to do is walk away from them. The second thing he tries to do is make his teaching so difficult that only a very few of them can stay. Why is that? Why do you think Jesus did that? Now, there are certain circumstances relative to Jesus that are not our circumstance. Okay, so first of all, if I ever tell you that I'm the bread of heaven, 
and that you need to eat my flesh, you should leave. Or maybe make me leave, right? Yeah, you stay here, kick me out. So that's a little, that's a little different. That's unique. Uh, and also, we see repeatedly Jesus in his ministry, especially in the book of Mark, he's telling people to keep quiet about who he is. But that's before his death and resurrection. After that, he's telling people to go out and share about who he is. So there is this shift that happens after the resurrection. And yet, I think a big part of this is that Jesus knew that the real church growth that needed to happen was the maturing and growing of the people that he was assigned by the Father to raise up and train so that they then could train others. So if Jesus has to choose between crowds who misunderstand him and think he's like Moses and think he should be a king and 12 guys who will obey him and listen to him, even if what he says sounds crazy, he's going to take the 12 guys. That's the real church growth movement. And of course, what comes from that? How many billions of people follow Christ in the world today because of those 12 and really 11 guys because of the ministry that they had, because Jesus had raised them up, because he had trained them, because he had led them well so that they could lead others. And as we've been reading along uh, in in our book, The Other Half of Church, one of the things that gets drawn out is this idea that churches often, especially certain types of churches, but it, it can happen in any church, sometimes we can get so focused on gathering people that we lose focus on building people. So instead, instead, of building a, instead of building a church organization, we should be building the church, which is the people. We should be raising up mature and Christ-filled and Spirit-filled and uh, obedient followers of Jesus Christ who then can lead others to do the same. And the argument, which I agree with, and I think Jesus really points to a similar idea, is that if you focus on that, the rest will follow. The rest will follow. Well, if that's, if this kind of big church, and again, I loved my church growing up, but if that's the wrong focus, then what's the right focus? Well, it's real growth. You know, I will say this. I went to a church that at its peak, had 7,000 people in the church on Sunday morning. I wonder how many of those people, A, are still following the Lord today, and B, how many of them, if they're still alive, because a lot of them have passed on, that was back in the 80s, how many of them are, have experienced an increasing measure of love, faithfulness, and obedience to the Lord because of their time there? I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that that's what's most important. I know that that's what's most important. If you, if you have, uh, uh, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter encourages the faithful. He says, you've got faith, now you need to add to it. Add to your faith. Add to your faith, faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. Add to your knowledge self-control. To self-control, add perseverance. Then add godliness, then add brotherly kindness, and then add love. Now, we talked last week that a lot of times in church, what we do the most is we try to encourage people to gain knowledge. I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, is that eight different items there? How many of them are knowledge? Knowledge. 
one. And what type, what do you see that links the other seven? It's about having godly character. It's about having love. It's about living a life that is righteous. So this idea that, again, that we talked about last week, that really how you identify a faithful believer or a faithful church is by their beliefs, is at best, at best, it's only a partial, partial truth. The way you identify real growth is when the character is changing and the knowledge is there. It's when the love is increasing and the knowledge is there. It's where your understanding grows, but as Paul says, that we're, we're, growing, we're growing in our understanding of love more than anything else. I would suggest that the most important activity of the church, even, even more than evangelism, because evangelism will flow out of it, even more than worship, because worship will flow out of it, even more than Bible study, because Bible study will flow out of it, even more than helping the poor, because helping the poor flows out of it, the most important thing we can do of the church is the work of growing in that relational loving and character forming process that thing that we call discipleship when we're doing that piece everything else if it's done well will follow you know one of the things that we talk about here at fellowship and uh, you know i don't even know it's not up here right now but if you if you look around like anything that we publish or put out it's got that little uh that little vase that jar and it's got the the wheat and it's got the olive plant and that's just an allusion to this passage actually here from joel chapter 2 that that god will restore the years the locusts have have eaten that he'll uh, fill our our floors our threshing floors with grain that he's going to restore that that our vats will overflow with new wine and new oil Uh, but one of the things that we have attached to that is that we have these four little words Transforming, connecting, growing, and sharing. Transforming, connecting, growing, and sharing. And I will say that at times we will put an emphasis on different aspects of that because we recognize that they're all interconnected and it's really a circle. It's not, it's not that you do one and then you move on from transformation and then go to growing. That there's a part of growing that has to happen in order for transformation to happen. There is a connecting that has to happen for transformation to happen. There is a sharing that needs to happen for connecting to happen. And connecting must happen for sharing to happen. These things, are, it's, it's, they're, they're all interacting with one another all the time. But I think sometimes what we focus on the least is that connecting piece. We think, well, we, de- we definitely need to be transformed by God. And we definitely need to grow. And we definitely need to share the gospel. But sometimes we see that connecting piece as like a nice optional addition it'd be nice if we were more connected as a church it'd be nice to have more friends at church it'd be nice if we could enjoy each other's company more but what if that were actually vital to all the other things happening now we've been using those four words for a lot of years and one of the things that that we've said about it is that when we talk about connecting we're talking about connecting deeply in relationship 
with both the Lord and the body of Christ. Both of them are necessary. And so the other thing I want to say before we move on is just real growth happens when we have this connection and this connection. And if you miss out on either of them, you're going to have a stunted growth. It's going to be stunted. That, and, and it's not because God's not enough. That's not the point. It's because God designed it that way. God being enough designed it so that we could only grow the most when we're connected both to him and to others. You know, I think about this idea of, you know, Jesus being the vine and we're the branches. You know that? And so he's our source. And, and, but Jesus also uses this metaphor to talk about how he's grafting different branches onto the vine, that he's connecting people who used to be disconnected. It's not just that we're connected to Jesus on the vine. We're connected to others on the vine. You ever think about that part of it? You know, this is important. So uh, if, if real growth, this kind of growing in kindness and godliness and perseverance, growing in self-control, growing in virtue, growing in love and in knowledge, if that's the most important thing that we're to do as the church, then how do we do it? How do we do it? And we've been talking about this for a while now, but, you know, I, I, I do find that when we're trying to help people grow, we tend to focus on knowledge. And we tend to think of knowledge as bits of information that we want you, the churchgoer, to understand or to believe. Does that make sense? And so, and so knowledge is a very transactional thing. And this wasn't always the case. You know, I don't know if you, if you have studied much in history. I, I have put this out before. You have to study history to understand the world today. You have to. It's the only way to understand where we are. But it, there was such a thing as, as the pre-modern world. And then we talked about, and we talk about modernism, and, and you can you know, discuss when it starts and stops, and now we're in this kind of postmodern world, which we can discuss. But um, in the pre-modern world, this is before the Enlightenment, before, before you have uh, Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. You know, th- this whole idea that, that you can reason yourself into all truth. Or you can, you can experience it tact, in a tactile way. So I know this notebook is here, but it's kind of like that whole matrix thing. How do I really know this isn't just a construct of my mind? How do I know it's real? Well, Descartes said, well, there's one thing I know is real. I'm thinking, so I must exist. But, you know, couldn't he have just as easily said, I love, therefore I must exist? Amo ergo sum. He could have said that. He could have said a number of things to prove his own existence to himself. But you know what? In the pre-modern world, no one worried about proving their own existence to themselves. It was just a given. And truth was a little bit differently understood than it's understood by us today. And I think there's some real wonderful outcomes of the Enlightenment. There's wonderful outcomes of of. The, the events of the last, call it, 400 years and understanding and knowledge. But there also have been things that we've lost. So, for example, um, in John chapter 14. So if you're, if you're still in John, just flip over a few pages. 
You may have read about this in the book, The Other Half of Church, where, um, let's see, where Philip says, to show us the Father, show us the Father. And, and Jesus says, if you know me, then, then you know the Father, because if you, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, so whatever I say is what the Father is saying. If, and then he, and he goes on to say, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the author of the book makes the point, and it's a very important point, that for Jesus, love comes before this obedience. Love comes before faithfulness. Love comes before uh, the execution of the command. He doesn't say, if you obey my commands, then I know you love me. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. But if you step back a little to verse 5, Thomas also asked Jesus a question in this passage. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And here's that famous phrase. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. If we were to articulate what Jesus was trying to say without ever having heard this before, we would probably say something like this. Jesus shows the way, Jesus teaches the truth, Jesus gives us life. That's how our natural uh, thinking process would probably lead us to communicate that idea. But part of the reason we would naturally communicate it that way, is that, does that seem like truth? Does that seem, you know, do you accept that, that statement as factual? <laughs> um, Part of that is because we're children of the Enlightenment and, and we think about truth as being something out there that we can point to. And what Jesus says is truth is right here and it's something you can love and be in relationship with. We think of a way as something that we can lead someone on. You know, follow this path and you'll reach your destination. And Jesus says, I am the path, just follow, not just follow me, because that's even, it's even stronger than that. It's like, just walk on me, exist on me and in me, because I am the path, right? We think of life as something that maybe God can give us life, or, you know, you can take a life. It's very transactional. Jesus says, I am life. I'm life. If you want life, you need me. And that's like when the people ask, give us this bread. Give us the bread of life. Where do we find this bread? They think it's something out here. And Jesus says, no, it's something right here, referring to himself. So, of course, even the pre-modern world, they have a hard time with this. It's not like everything about how we think changed, but it's almost impossible for us to think this way now. And what if I told you that all truth is relational? What if I said that all truth relates to love? What if I said that all truth relates to beauty and goodness? You know, those, those ideas seem weird to us, don't they? And I don't know if I can take the time to defend those statements, but that's more how people used to think. We don't think that way so much anymore. Now, on top of that, 
So there's this approach to truth, approach to the world, this way we view the world that's different than it used to be. But on top of that, also, the way we relate to one another has changed significantly over the centuries. So if you think about Jesus uh, going, to, going to, to preach this coming kingdom to the people of Israel, what would their lives have been like? Where, did they, where were they born? Where do they live? Where will they die? Probably in the exact same spot. And probably the family they were born into, they still literally live with them. Multiple generations in a home. If you're a kid growing up, you probably have multiple sets of grandparents nearby or living in your home that are raising you. And you're growing up alongside your cousins and your aunts and uncles. And so there's this community that's raising you. And there's a certain type of stability in that. You know, I, I wonder... What it was like, have, have any of you children ever been exasperated with your parents? Have any of you parents ever been exasperated with your children? Wouldn't it be nice to say, you go with them for a little while? Or, you know, mom and dad, I'm going to go hang out with Uncle Charlie for a little bit. Or grandma and grandpa. I mean, that's a good thing. You know, that's a healthy thing. You're not running from your problems, but you just have this larger community Whereas today, it's very much this little, we call it the nuclear family. The nuclear family didn't exist 200 years ago. You know what I mean? And not only that, but we often don't live close to our place of origin. Which means that, I mean, how many of you could, within 10 minutes, be with someone who knew you as a kid? Some of you can. A lot of us can't. You know, that, that has an impact. You know, there's a certain grounding that happens. You know, one of the things that the moves from the rural area to the city in the, in the turn of the really, you know, talk, the 1900s with the Industrial Revolution and everything that happened is that people were, were you know, unmoored. <laughs> they moved from their place of origin where everyone knew them, and, and there was a bit of an accountability. You know, if you're a kid doing something wrong in the street, then all the parents in town know your parents. You have, to, you have to watch out. But if you're in the city and you're doing something wrong in the street, none of these people know your parents. All right? So you can just do what you want. And if you get away, you get away. It's that there's this different kind of relating that happens because of that. And, and really, we're disconnected from our extended family often. And then we're even disconnected in our family. So even... 200 years ago, you would grow up in your home, your mom would be there, and your dad, when he was working, very often would be working within earshot. He's either out in the, the farm, right outside, or, you know, maybe he's got a, a mill at the house where he mills lumber or wheat or whatever it is. Um, maybe he's a blacksmith and his shop is right out back. So everyone's around. And there's this connection. There's this consistency. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a working mom or if your kids are in daycare or anything like that, the, the point is not, oh, you're ruining their lives. The point is this. There is a difference, and we need to be aware of the difference so that we can respond to the difference. And so we just have a different depth of relating 
compared to what people would have had 200 years ago. It's just true. And then you add in the internet, my goodness, like just blow the lid off of deep connecting. And so what happens is those of us who even grew up with deeper connections, a lot of us have seen our relationships atrophy in this modern age. And then especially for our young ones, a lot of times they're not learning certain things that even we learned growing up because a lot of their interaction happens in this virtual space. And of course, we have seen, and it's been well documented, that when you interact online, it significantly increases bullying, right? Because there's no accountability, there's no one observing, there's no one around. Uh, you can, it feels anonymous, and it's not just for kids. Adults bully online all the time, you know? Uh, it, it increases a sense of isolation and loneliness, when people spend a lot of their time online, this thing that was supposed to connect us, in some ways it has, but in other ways it's created this disconnection in our culture, in our society. And so I've been asking myself this question, and maybe you're asking it too, which is, why are we looking at even any of this brain science stuff? Why are we looking at left brain, right brain? Why are we, why are we saying that the things that the church used to do aren't good enough anymore? And I think part of it is that we live in a different world than we used to. And so a lot of times, uh, we need to build the part of our connection, relating our identity and our group identity that would have more naturally been there 200 years ago, but they aren't as naturally there today. Does that make sense? And then there's one other reason that we have to do this. And this is not a new reason. This one goes back to all time. You know, when, when Jesus tells the rich man, the rich young ruler, and he says, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me, what does he do? He walks away sad because he's very wealthy. I, I, I love the way that's explained. It doesn't say he walks away sad because he can't, he can't deal with the idea of giving up what he has. It doesn't say he walks away sad because he's so greedy. It says he walks away sad because he was so wealthy, as if that were all the explanation we needed to understand why he couldn't follow Jesus. You know, we have always struggled to keep things relationally in priority. Always, as human beings. And we all have different areas of, of brokenness, we all have different areas of fallenness. We all have different types of trauma in our lives. We all have different gaps in our own development and maturity. This is just reality because we live in a fallen world. And so, for example, some of us don't know how to feel confident and comfortable without external resources to help us feel like we can manage our world. So if you're a rich young ruler and you've been counting on money to be at peace with the world. The idea of giving that up is so scary because you feel like you're losing all control. There are absolutely also poor people who feel the same way about money. So it's not a rich or poor thing really, but this guy had so much that he just couldn't even imagine not having it and following Jesus. But he needed to grow. and He needed to have a change of paradigm in order to follow Jesus. We don't know if that ever happened. Maybe it happened later. You know, one of the things that we sometimes forget, you know, who, who is Jesus against the most in the New Testament, in the Gospels? He's always attacking those bad Pharisees, right? Do you know who the earliest church leaders were? 
the apostles and the Pharisees. <laughs> Most of the early church leaders were Pharisees. So we don't know what happened after Jesus died and rose from the dead. We don't know that story as well. Maybe this guy had a change of heart. But it's just this recognition that there are things that we need to do because in life, because of our uh, being a product of the Enlightenment, because of the disconnection that we experience in our culture and our society, and because of our own shortcomings and our own development and the hurts and things that we've experienced along the way, sometimes we don't have the most fertile soil for the things of God to take root. Do you know that story about, that Jesus tells about the, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who casts seed? He says, some of the seed fell in good soil. Some of the seed fell in rocky soil. Some of the seed fell among weeds, and some fell on the road. The seed that fell on the road, the birds, they come, they eat it up. Satan, it's gone. Yeah, he steals the, 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 the hope of that word ever taking root. And then there's people who the seed falls in the, among the weeds, and it grows. The gospel takes root. But the challenges of life choke it out. You ever wonder if those people are believers or not? Yeah, it says the word takes root. It grows. But then stuff comes and they're not able to deal with it. And then there's the rocky stuff and you've got the similar problem. The roots don't go deep, dries up. And then you've got good soil that takes root and it flourishes. I can't say for certain what Jesus had in mind, but I can certainly see a relevance to what we're talking about today. If you want to flourish, if you want the word, if you want... Not just to have faith, but if you want to add to your faith virtue and add to your virtue kindness and add to your kindness knowledge and add to your knowledge um, love and, you know, this, where is our list here? Yeah, if you want self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness, knowledge, if you want to add those things to your faith, then you need to have good soil. And part of the good soil we need is to have uh, these mature minds, mature character, deep connections that go beyond what we're used to in the world today. So in a sense, we need to fix the soil. We're going to get into how to do that, but just the broad general answer is this simple idea. And by the way, this isn't the only thing that we need to do to have good soil. There are other things that come into play, but something that we, that we see has been missing is that in the church, we need to focus on developing not just our ideas, but also our deep ability to connect with another person, to connect with the Lord, something we're going to call attuning with the Lord, where we can come into harmony with the Lord. Did you know there's actually a part of your brain, it's called mirror neurons, that when you look joyfully into the eyes of someone who's happy, that there are parts of your brain that start to look exactly the same and fire in the same places and you actually get to give and receive joy from one another. But you can also give and receive other things from one another. It's not just joy. So we want to focus on these things that, that, that build us up. Uh, we want to train the parts of us that have those automatic reactions that we talked about last week. We don't, want to, we don't want to be responding every single time. Um, I used last week, my example was getting defensive. 
By the way, I need to mention something about that example last week. I said I didn't unload the dishes. Now, this is really funny because the dishwasher messed up last night, so I literally had to restart it this morning. So I haven't unloaded the dishes again. This is why this is important, though, because that's actually my job. I do that every day, and so if I don't do it, then Sonia has to do her job and my job. I didn't make that clear last week. And also, she doesn't say, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? She usually says something like, hey, you didn't unload the dishwasher again, which is not an attack, but I still get defensive. So I don't want to keep getting defensive and then realizing I got defensive when I kind of calm down and then apologize. That gets old, doesn't it? What I want to do is change my initial reaction, the one that I had before I even think about it, and that's my character. And you can't change your character most of the time by just trying harder. It typically doesn't work. You need the involvement of the Holy Spirit, but there also are practical things we can do to train ourselves to respond differently in those moments. And again, this is how we learn almost everything. Repetition. By the way, if you were in the ancient world and you wanted to learn something, there were some conveyance of facts. Someone did tell you ideas. But mostly the way you learn things is that you would follow someone and watch them do it. And then when you were ready, they would let you do it with them. And then when you were ready, they would watch you do it. And then you could go out and do it on your own. That's what an apprentice was. And you know, you start out as an apprentice and then you become a journeyman. And then you would produce some type of work to illustrate that you had mastered the work. It's called a masterpiece, whether it's a clock or a painting. You would create a masterpiece, and then there's a guild who would say, you have successfully completed this masterpiece, and now you're a master. And when you're a master, then you can take on your own um, apprentice. Thank you, Paul. And it all starts over. The way we teach people now is we say, Get this book, and let me explain these ideas to you. And then what happens? A lot of times, people go out into their life, and they might know how to do complex math, but they don't know how to keep a checkbook. I know that's archaic. No one keeps a checkbook anymore, but you get my point. They can't keep their balance and their account level appropriately. You know? And so we have to t- you have to train people by... by walking them through it. And there are things we can do to walk each other through this process of acquiring the character of Jesus Christ. So we're going to learn about some of those. So if you're in a small group uh, doing the other half of church, then this week you're actually going to do a little bit of that. And then it's going to get more intense because there's some big things that we need to train each other in. And it can't all be done in seven weeks. This is just to help us get started. Then we're going to have to carry it on And you can't do it alone. There are certain things that you cannot grow on your own. You can only grow with someone else. For example, trust. You can't grow trust on your own. It's impossible. Now, sometimes we do it with the Lord. Sometimes we do it with each other. Most of the times we do it both. But that's what we're going to be doing. So as you continue on this journey with us, and if you're not in a group, find someone to do these things with. I encourage you to get that book, The Other Half of Church. Continue to follow along. We're going to be looking at how to actually, what are the actual practical things we can do to prepare the soil so that our faith 
can grow the way Peter described, that it can flourish, that we can add to it virtue, that we can add to a virtue knowledge, that we can add to our knowledge brotherly kindness, perseverance, self-control, and love. Peter says, and, and if you, if I didn't, we didn't actually go there, I don't think, did we? We should, just for one second. And then we'll close with this. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, verse 5. For this very reason, he's talking about we need to have a godly life. right? We need to ex- experience these precious promises that God has given us and escape the corruption of the world. For this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. By the way, he says make an effort. Make an work. This is going to be work. Make an effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying you can be unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. But if you have these things increasing in your life, you will not be unproductive or ineffective in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the call. That's the invitation. We're going to be building this soil so that these types of things grow and flourish in our lives. And if that happens, I mean, Jesus took 12 guys, 11 of them made it through the course. All right? 11 of them passed. And out of that, billions of Christians So if it's not our goal, trust me, it's not our goal. But if our goal were to have 5,000 people here on a Sunday morning, then this would be the best way to go about it. This is what's going to result in us being effective in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we don't want to be ineffective. And we know you don't want us to be ineffective. We don't want to be unproductive. And we know you don't want us to be unproductive. Lord, we know that your heart is not just for big buildings, but your heart is for lives that are saved. Your heart is for souls that are redeemed. Your heart is for uh, transformation and change in us, for us to grow and mature to, to the fullness uh, that Christ offers us, that we would be truly made to look like Jesus. Not just, not just by your declaration, which is good and, and is, is a promise we hold on to, that legally we are righteous and holy and that we are in Christ, but also, Lord, in our practice and in our actions, we want to be like Jesus. And we know that if we make every effort and if we're uh, intentionally doing things to help ourselves and to help each other grow, Lord, that you will carry us in to that, not, not necessarily perfection, but you'll carry us into this increasing measure of these things. Lord, an increasing measure of the fruit of the Spirit, an increasing measure of uh, love flowing in and out of our lives, an increasing measure of kindness and gentleness, an increasing measure of uh, virtue, goodness, perseverance, hope, joy, all the things that we want. So, Lord, we're, we're both trusting you and we're doing what you have told us to do, which is to put in the work. 
And God, as we do our part, we know you're doing your part. And so we believe without any hesitation that we will grow when we do our part. So Lord, help us even in that. Help us to to will and to work according to your purposes. Help us to do the things you're calling us to do to grow in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.